early mornings for early worship. Um, you're, uh, you can be grateful. I, I'm grateful to Jane that I am here this morning because if it wasn't for Jane, I don't think I would have remembered that it was daylight savings time. Although now, automatically, our phones do this for us, so there's much less setting and resetting clocks. I used to have to do that for my parents quite often, uh, go change all their clocks back and stuff. Uh, and now they don't, I think they've gotten it taken care of for the most part, or they just ignore them. Uh, we were also glad last night to find out that Jake's clock that has been an hour ahead all during the non-daylight savings time portion of the year is now back on schedule. Uh, so we don't have to do that. Um, lately, um, I have watched all of the Bob Ross episodes that are available on Netflix. And so being without any more painting shows to watch, I scoured and found uh, on Amazon uh, Woolies Watercolors, which I know sounds horrible, but the guy's name is Peter Woolley. You know, he's British, so he's uh, easy to listen to. And, uh, and it is completely the opposite of Bob Ross. Although he's just as kind and as congenial, uh, watercolor is a much slower process. Uh, and there's this letting things dry and all this stuff. But one of the things that, that happens, in, and I notice as he, he says, as he's talking, he talks about, well, as we're drawing this tree, let's think about how trees work and what happens. And so he's uh, drawing branches, he's like, you know, avoid any right angles and make sure that even if the branch is pointing down, that it always curves up at the end. And I was like, really? Does it really? And so as I'm driving in this morning, as I've been driving around lately, I've been looking at trees and noticing all the branches and how, yeah, they do. And how this guy knows his stuff. And, uh, and then I'm also looking at the sky uh, because sometimes they'll do a watercolor wash for the sky. And I'll think, that's an odd choice. Why would you do that? But it looks beautiful in the end. And then I notice as I'm driving in this morning, the beauty of this guy and how there's some odd choices up above, too, as well, that I wouldn't have, have, have expected. I think during Lent, we have the opportunity to, again, draw our attention to things that we might not have noticed before, uh, to look at those simple things uh, around us where we might find the presence of God uh, that we haven't noticed before. Uh, whether that's in a tree, whether that's in a beautiful sky, whether that's in someone we didn't expect to find the presence of God in before. And maybe uh, during this time too, our hearts can be awakened uh, to God's love, to God's grace among us even more. Let's worship together this morning. So I'm sorry to get off track, but I really have to ask this. Do you paint with these people or do you just watch them? I, I, have, I have started to paint. It's so not great. If anybody has any leftover watercolors or acrylics in their basement or drying up. There you go. If you would join, uh, join me, Sand, and join me in the call to worship, please. Oh, I can do this. I always forget this. As we begin, we'll light this candle celebrating the presence of Christ in us, among us, and beyond us. Who is welcome on God's front porch? All are welcome. God's front porch is wide and deep. Amen. 
Everyone who comes here takes a deep breath and says, this place, this place is safe. Angels and residents look out for each other. We welcome neighbors and live in harmony with the land. There is more than enough here. Extravagant love, abundant peace, and generous welcome. Hot meals and cold drinks are passed around. Everyone pitches in, young and old. Sure, there will be trouble, but there's always help. Always a hand to hold, always a quiet presence. We are never alone. God invites us to work beside each other to learn from our differences. We patch up the roof and widen the steps. There is life here, lift to the brim. Turn around and say hello to someone you know or don't know. Hello. too comfortable, I'm going to invite you to stand, remain standing as we sing together. Number 802, The King of Love, My Shepherd Is.
before Jane comes and sings, we're going to read scripture this morning from Deuteronomy, chapter 26. The priest will then take the basket from you and place it before the Lord your God's altar. Then you should solemnly state before the Lord your God. My father was a starving Aramean. He went down to Egypt, living as an immigrant there with few family members. But that is where he became a great nation, mighty and numerous. The Egyptians treated us terribly, oppressing us and forcing hard labor on us. So we cried out for help to the Lord, our ancestors' God. The Lord heard our call. God saw our misery, our trouble, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with awesome power and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land full of milk and honey. So now I am bringing the early produce of the fertile ground that you, Lord, have given me. Set the produce before the Lord your God, bowing down before the Lord your God. Then celebrate all the good things the Lord your God has done for you and your family, each one of you, along with the Levites and the immigrants who are among you. The word of the Lord. Be to God.
It's the only tune I can play. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Um, before I start, you'll notice the white rose. I think most of you have probably heard. This is in celebration of Edith Clare, uh, born to Charles and Michelle Stokes Conkin uh, this past Thursday, weighing eight pounds and four ounces. The, the family's doing well. Uh, they're home, um, but a little bit tired. So send them encouragement electronically at this point, and, uh, and we'll let you know more about their needs. But we welcome little Edith to our congregation. Growing up around some of the most beautiful horse farms in the entire world, my oldest son became a bicycle enthusiast. When, we, when he would visit our home for the summer, uh, he would come with luggage in a Kroger plastic bag during the winter. He graduated to a laundry basket. But he would, in the summer, particularly make sure he had his bicycle in tow. Folded out in the back seat with the uh, folded down seats so that he could take this ride that he was familiar with to Wilmore on a 30-mile rotation. And sometimes when I would watch him crest the hill and disappear over the horizon, I would think back to the time when he was a little boy and how stubbornly he resisted learning to ride a bike in the first place. Let's go outside and work on riding your bike. No! Don't you want to go... Learn to ride your bike? No. Well, why not? I might fall off and get hurt. But don't you want to be with the other kids when you get bigger? Not really. Come on, let's give it a try. No, I want to stay home. But it will be okay, I promise. I don't care. 
And after 10 minutes or so of this back and forth, you finally resort as a parent, many of you have been there, to the last deck in the card deck you can play. Look, you're going to go out there and you're going to have fun. Even if I have to make you. Well, obviously we got through it. <laughs> but it took some patience and encouragement, some endurance, some dog-eared determination. His four-year-old self could only see the risk and the dangers and absolutely none of the benefits. And around this time of year, as we spring forward with the warmer winds, heading our way with a mighty force, Christians embrace the practice of Lent and talk about putting forth effort and training alongside of our faith to take a few risks and to make some changes as we seek to grow closer to Christ and the transformation he continually invites us to share. And before Jesus tells us what to do, as Jesus so often does in his ministry, he shows us. He begins his risk-taking ministry by going into the wilderness by himself, all alone for 40 days, reminiscent of Moses and the children of Israel who took 40 years to learn a new way. King David, Elijah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Hosea, the Desert Fathers and Mothers, Luther, St. Francis, Roger Williams, and a whole host of spiritual pilgrims met and experienced God in the scary unknown of a barrier frontier. You will not develop much on the spiritual journey until you learn how to travel without your training wheels. The training wheels of convention and comfort and ease and convenience. And as we read this passage that we are looking at from Luke chapter 4, the first 13 verses, we see Jesus inviting us to be with him in the wilderness. For scripture tells us that God waits in the desert for us. In the desert, God met Hagar and Ishmael, banished through no fault of their own by Abraham and Sarah in what was not one of their finer moments. And before he leads God's people, Moses is a runaway fugitive with a secret identity, hiding out in the wilderness only to come face to face with the true God of his ancestors believing he alone is the last remaining true believer on the face of the earth. Elijah retreats into the wilderness before he experiences God, not in the earthquake, not in the whirlwind, but in the still, small voice. The prophet Hosea says in chapter 2, verse 14, the Lord saying, come to the desert. And I will speak tenderly to your soul. Now, if you're following along this Lent with the gift of imperfection by Brene Brown, you know, we're creatively thinking about the interior wilderness of the soul as well. And this week we are considering the chapter, 
that encourages us to let go of unhealthy patterns of perfectionism and replacing it by cultivating more compassion. Compassion for ourselves and compassion for our world. Letting go of perfectionism and cultivating self-compassion. Hold on to that just for a moment. Because first, let's clear up an idea that is mistaken about perfectionism. Perfectionism, according to Brown, is not, de not denying the impulse to do your best or to try your hardest. Rejecting unhealthy perfectionism is not a speech against self-improvement. We are all trying to do our best and to do better. Otherwise, sermons would be pointless. But perfectionism, as Brown explains it, is trying to earn approval and acceptance by virtue of our perfectionistic habits. Most perfectionists, she says, were raised being praised for achievement and performance, grades, manners, rule following, people pleasing, appearance, sports. Somewhere along the way, we adopt this dangerous and debilitating belief system I am what I accomplish and how well I accomplish it. Please perform, perfect, healthy striving is self-focused. How can I improve? Perfectionism is other-focused. What will they think? What must I do to earn the approval of others. Which leads me to the theology of the devil. The devil has a theology. It's not a very good theology, but it's a theology nevertheless. And perhaps today you might want to open up your Bible to Luke chapter 4 and read this temptation of Jesus, thinking through the lens of B'nai Brown's understanding about perfectionism that is negative and compassion that is positive and also this tactic of the terrible theology of the devil and the first thing you might notice is that the devil is not anti-god the, the temptations do not question the existence of god or jesus's unique status as god's son the devil agrees with jesus's mission to spread his message and to gain the attention and impact throughout the whole world. And then to further validate his cause, we learn how the devil will even quote scripture to validate his position. He says, if or because you're the son of God, here's what I imagine a son of God would do. He would take care of our needs. He would never refuse to feed us. He would make sure we realized who was number one. He would always be there to reassure us and comfort us. He would force us to never question God and demand that we serve him without fault and without error. He would make our lives perfect, at least perfect according to our limited definitions and short-sighted perspectives. The, Jesus, the, the devil didn't have a problem with Jesus' goals, only Jesus' methodology. 
He didn't like the way Jesus was going to accomplish the task of changing the world. And the deception is clear. As long as you say the right things, it really doesn't matter what you do. So that language about God, especially language that honors God, for example, printing in God we trust on our money or upon our school buildings, will be sufficient. Why worry about how you actually treat others when you are so public in demonstrating your loyalty to God? As long as you offer God lip service, you can get away with just about anything. But Jesus will spend his whole ministry putting specific behaviors ahead of any confessed belief, offering a priority, put very succinctly by his disciple John, who writes, How can you say you love God whom you've not seen if you refuse to love the neighbor who you can see? How can we come into a worshipful space and talk about how much we worship and love and honor God when we can't with compassion and love and kindness be kind and gracious to the person who is right in our face. Moralism is not the same thing as developing good morals. And there are no shortcuts to spiritual maturity. And if we constantly demand perfection from everyone without ever teaching and practicing any kind of compassion, then we are just as likely to produce monsters as good moral people. Because self-righteousness never saved anyone. Not the person who is being judged or the person doing all the judging. You're going to be uncomfortable in life. You're going to be challenged in life. The road's going to be hard and barren and difficult. And sometimes you will feel that you are in the wilderness alone by yourself. And you will be overcome with anxiety and fear and questions. And it seems what Jesus invites us to experience when we're up against the uphill challenges that life will undoubtedly bring our way is that we will pedal harder with compassion, with patience, with long-suffering, knowing that our journey is honored truly by God, that we won't pretend to know what we're doing, but we'll just keep at it. So that whenever we feel the challenge of life and the difficulty of life and the problem of neighbor and the frustration of politics, we will increase the dial toward compassion, recognizing that sometimes the person who needs the most compassion is yourself. I've often said to people, who are going through a difficult time and really are beating up themselves, what would you say to yourself 
if you were talking to your very best friend? Would you treat your best friend as cruelly as you are treating yourself? Christopher Germer says, a moment of self-compassion can change your entire day. A string of such moments can change the course of your life. I think at some points, it starts to all come together. It takes some time. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a few spills and boo-boos. But eventually you learn the speed and you get your balance just right and, and you know how to stop without falling over. And right there, off you go. Not even remembering the difficulty you had at the beginning. And you're on your way. We're going to begin our response this morning by singing 692, Spirit Open My Heart.
this morning, we're going to take a few moments again to be attentive to the presence of the divine among us, to acknowledge the grace of God, the love of God that is here in this place and that goes and moves far beyond these walls. As we do that, in a few moments, you'll have the opportunity to sit and to pray quietly, to reflect on the icon and the quote that's on the back of your orders of worship or on the screens here. Maybe just to sit and to pay attention to your breath. Or maybe you want to come forward and light a candle to either side at the front here and let that symbolize your prayer to God this morning. However you choose, you have this time to invite the Spirit of God to open your heart. Before we do that, let's read together our call to prayer. God, you are our protector and salvation. You watch out for trouble and defend us in our need. When we are exhausted, invite us to sit. When we are afraid, and surround us with your strong arms. When we are ashamed, speak our true name. When we are hateful, look us in the eye. When we are wronged, challenge our prejudices. When we are attacked,
God, it is good to be still. It is good to remember your presence with us. We ask you, God, that you would give us the grace to be compassionate even to ourselves. See the grace that is available to all of us that is already there, enveloping us. That we might let go of those things that keep us us from looking more like the image of Christ that is within us. We ask you, God, to draw us deeper into your love. As we see that we are loved through and through, that we are your children, that we are your beloved find healing and in that healing we would be able to offer grace that we would be able to offer welcome that we would be able to offer hope for those in this world who find themselves on the margins themselves left out. Who find it hard to offer themselves compassion because they've been told that they are less than. That they are not good enough. And that they are not welcome. We remember, God, that your front porch is a wide and open space room for everyone, even us. We thank you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. I'm going to sing one last song before we go. It's really simple, and uh, you'll catch on to it really quick, and you'll find it printed at the end of your orders of worship. As we leave this morning, we invite you also, uh, there's a offering plate in the back as you leave and there's also uh, in the foyer lots of stuff on the sign up table you can check out there and see the other things that are going on uh, this week and in the coming weeks here at church so thanks so much let's stand together as we sing together our closing song you are